Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn J-Town in Louisville, Kentucky. Just over a year ago, I think it was, uh, Facebook added an enhancement called On This Day. Have you seen this? Um, Those of you, that means that every time, some of you may have turned it off, or maybe some of you don't use Facebook, that's fine. If you're my teenagers, that's like so 2010 or something. It's you're beyond that. But for us old people, it's still hip. But what happens, what that means is that when I open my Facebook, often, I don't know when or why or how, it shows me something that I have posted from some time in the past, maybe a year ago, maybe two years ago, maybe several years ago. And it invites me to repost this and to invite me to go down memory lane and think about things that have happened to me in the past. Now, like I said, sometimes these are from a year ago, sometimes a couple of years ago, sometimes more. I was reminded recently that a year ago, my family and I were in Florida enjoying Harry Potter World and other Floridian adventures, and that was a good, good memory. I was reminded that five years ago, just last week, my now almost 16-year-old, a picture of him when he was almost 11, big difference, uh, popped up reminding me that he and I were on a trip, a father and son trip to a King's Island five years ago. It was a good memory. Now, unlike our memories, though, Facebook actually has a feature where you can control which memories I see. It's under preferences edit if you want to go turn it off. And you can actually have people or days not appear in that on this day if there's somebody you don't want to. So that's good to know. We can't do that. But also another feature that is part of this new thing in Facebook is that you can actually go back and look at a particular day, like today, and see all the things you've posted. So I did that this morning, and I learned that a year ago today, one of my kids was learning E minor on the guitar. I also learned that a couple years ago today, I had just gotten the Sonic toothbrush, which will change (laughs) your life if you don't have one of those. I mean, that thing will, you'll feel very different. Um, I learned that eight years ago, I had just finished recording a bunch of lectures for a class on DVD. It's interesting to think how much has changed. Like we just re-recorded those and they're not on DVD anymore. And most surprising, I learned that a year ago, I was sick with the same sore throat that I have this week as well. So I'm wondering if there's some allergy or something. But this is all stuff that is all about memories. And the question I have for us is why, why are we so interested? Why is that so important to us to think about our memories and to have memories? Or maybe even a more important question, why did God create us with the ability to remember things? I mean, think about that. There are lots of creatures that don't have memories, plants, cockroaches, other things, as far as I know. But God has created us with the ability to remember things, to actually relive events that no longer exist. And to not only live them in your minds, but actually to feel them physically and to be affected emotionally just as powerfully. That's an amazing gift of the imagination that we can actually relive things that no longer exist. And sometimes, and sometimes that's a curse, isn't it? In the sense that sadness can overwhelm us as well. But it is an amazing gift of our imaginations to be able to remember 
Now, as you may or may not know, there's actually a lot of study going on now on memory in a lot of fields. So in neurology, there's a lot of discussion going on because of dementia and Alzheimer's, trying to figure out what memory is neurologically and how to improve it and retain it. Psychologically, there's a lot going on with memory, the effect of our family of origin and other traumatic memories that we might have and how to actually use therapeutic techniques to help get over those. And historically, in my field of study, there's a lot of work being done on how history is kind of the retelling of memory. So there's a lot going on, but it's not, of course, just a matter of current interest. Memories have always been an important part of the human experience. Whether it's a 6,000-year-old cave wall painting of the great battle with a bison or something, right? Or a statue of a great leader, or all the way down to you and me, and the most important thing, the scrapbook, right? Where you can make a family vacation that was actually you yelling at your kids and all stressed out. You can make it look like it was a happy event, right? As my wife and I always used to say, it's not about the actual experience, it's all about the scrapbook, right? But the Bible is actually no exception to seeing and valuing the importance of this great gift of memory. In fact, if you think about it, all throughout the Old Testament, God commands his people to remember certain events and monuments of his provision, his grace. God instructs his people to write songs and reenact events and say certain things to each other, to to raise up stones like an Ebenezer, an Ebenezer stone, which is a stone of remembrance is what that means in Hebrew, so that we can remember what God has done. And all those memories that God commands his people come right down to our text for today. This is our last story in our series that we've been doing on meals with Jesus and Luke. And it's not only the last text we're going to look at, the last meal of many, but it's actually Jesus's last meal, what we call the Last Supper. And what we're going to see, I believe, is that at this turning point of history, that Jesus makes this very important meal about memory. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to open to Holy Scripture in Luke chapter 22 and read this together and ask what God might have for us. But first I want to just pause once more and pray before we do so. Why don't you pray with me? Our Father, we are in desperate need of you. Whether we realize it or not this morning, you are the one sustaining us, making our hearts beat, our minds work, our tongues function, our um, any hope for life, or joy is in your hands, and we thank you that you are very good and you're for us today. So I pray that you would do what we can't do for ourselves, open our hearts and minds, heal us, touch us, reveal yourself to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you were here last week, um, if not, it's okay as well, but if you were here last week, you may recall that when we were in Luke chapter 19 with the interesting story of Zacchaeus, that I mentioned that 
that story was at a crucial point in Luke's gospel because the whole book of, of Luke was barreling down towards that last week of Jesus' life. And that Zacchaeus story was really important because it, it was right at this sort of juncture of the rest of Jesus' ministry and the beginning of his life. And so then what happens after that story is that Jesus does enter into Jerusalem, what we call the triumphal entry that we celebrate on Palm Sunday. And during that triumphal entry, it was actually kind of a mixed entry, I call it, in that there a lot of people were very happy Jesus was there and a lot of people were very mad. And then what happens is in the next couple of chapters of Luke, where Jesus is in Jerusalem, he's teaching lots of things and he's increasingly having conflict with the religious authorities in Jerusalem. And they had been plotting for months and months and months, trying to figure out a way to kill him. Because in their minds, he's obviously an ungodly, wrongly theological blasphemer who claims that he's God himself, and he's causing all kinds of social and political upheaval. So they just decide the only way to deal with this is to kill him. The problem was they couldn't ever get to him because he was so popular until these chapters right before this, where their dream came true. Of all people, one of Jesus' own special 12 closest friends, one of his band of brothers, decided that he had become disillusioned with Jesus and his message, and he was willing to betray Jesus and tell the religious authorities where they could capture Jesus privately. And it's that scene that is the setup to what we read then in Luke chapter 22. It's printed in your bulletin, or we'll have it on the screen here as well. Here's what happened. Then came the day of unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asked, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room, all furnished, and you should make preparations there. So they left and found the things just as Jesus had told them. And so they prepared the Passover. Now, you and I have certain holidays that are very important to us. Some of them are religious holidays. Some are cultural holidays. A lot of them are a combination of both. So we have Christmas. We have Thanksgiving. We've got Fourth of July. Um, it's important for you to know, I feel like this is part of my service to you, July 31st is also National Raspberry Cake Day, um, National Talk in an Elevator Day, and of course, Harry Potter's birthday as well. So those are all holidays that some of us might be celebrating. But so did the Jewish people. The Jewish people had the New Year's Festival, Rosh Hashanah. They had the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. They had Hanukkah and many others. But for sure, the most important holiday for the Jewish people was Passover. Passover, the day that God instituted, that they were supposed to remember, that they still do today, the Jewish people do, to remember that they were once slaves under the Pharaoh in Egypt, but that God had rescued them and brought them out and made a new relationship with them. So that key event of the Exodus is celebrated in this feast called the Passover that we just heard about in Luke 22. Now, the Passover, the reason it's called that is because it refers to that 10th sign that God did because the Pharaoh did not want to let a million of his slaves, his main workforce, he did not want to let them go, obviously. So in his hardness of heart, God had to do 10 miracles or 10 wonders, the 10th of which 
was the worst. And that is that the firstborn son of every household would be killed by the angel of death. And the only way to prevent that from happening is that if by faith you took a lamb, sacrificed it, put its blood on the doorpost, and then when the angel of death, and Jew or Egyptian could do that, anyone who had faith to believe that God was true could do that. And then when the angel of death passed over the houses that had that faith blood list shown, they were spared. And it's also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread that we just heard there in verse 7 because this all happened so quickly that after that night, that horrible dark night in Egypt, when Pharaoh said, fine, fine, you can go, they had to gather their things and leave so quickly that the bread didn't have time to rise. And so they, that became a metaphor of the, of the rushedness of, of leaving quickly and leaving things behind, the idea of the Passover and the unleavened bread. And through those events then, you see, God reforms his people. He makes a covenant with them under the leadership of Moses that we call the Mosaic Covenant that lasted for thousands of years all the way down to the very weekend that we're reading about in this chapter. And so it is on this most important of Jewish family holidays that Jesus chooses to go to Jerusalem to gather his friends around them. And it's not an accident as he reenacts this meal with them as the Lamb of God, as we'll see. Now, if you look back at verses 8 to 13, this part is kind of weird. It's like something out of a spy show or something, right? I mean, he tells them, go prepare it. He doesn't tell them where to go prepare it. You'll see somebody walking, carrying a jar, follow that person. What's all going on there? Well, probably what's happening here is that, remember, the Jewish leadership is trying to capture Jesus to kill him. And Jesus knows that Jesus is going to betray him. So it seems that what's going on here is that these secret instructions, this is a way that Jesus told and set up the Passover meal so that they could all be there together, that this final important meal that Jesus cared about would not be thwarted. They could have this one final night together. And then you remember at this meal, he is going to turn right after our text, turn to Judas and tell him to go do now what he's done. So in other words, I don't think Judas was able to know where the meal was until they were gathering together so that Jesus could make sure that he had this last meal with them. And that's the first part of our story. That's the setup. Let's look at what happens at the dinner. Look at verse 14. Now, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And remember, if you hear other weeks, I've talked about this. This would be like a, probably a circular or a square, I mean, a, a U-shaped table. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink it again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, we've seen a lot of meals of Jesus and Luke, but this is by far the most important one. This is where it all comes to completion. And notice that Jesus, it says, knows that he is about to be captured 
and beaten and ridiculed and mocked and tried and then killed. And he knows this. Do you ever play the the, uh, game maybe with your family or yourself? Like, what would you do if you had one year left to live? What would you do if you had one month to live? What would you do if you had one day to live? It's actually a good exercise to do. Kind of helps you see what you prioritize. Well, look at what Jesus does, knowing this is his last night. He doesn't go out into the middle of the crowds and shoot some rays out of his fingers or something or demand adulation or preach a final great sermon. What does Jesus do on his last night, knowing that his time has come? He gathers face to face in this intimate meal with his beloved friends. And notice he says this unexpected thing, that this meal that he's partaking of, he will not partake of this meal again until the kingdom comes. And that is so important because the whole message of Luke has been, the whole message of Jesus has been that he is coming to bring about God's reign, the time when God will set things to right on the earth, when relationships will be healed and no more cancers and diseases and relationship between humanity and each other and with God and with nature and creation itself will all be set to right. That's the image of the new creation or the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying I am now bringing this to be, and this is the final moment where I'm taking this final physical meal with you and I am looking forward to and guaranteeing you that all that's about to happen and all that's about to happen, his suffering, his death, things that are going to make the disciples think maybe we were wrong about Jesus, maybe this whole thing was a mistake. All that's going to happen, he's assuring them right now, there is a time coming where I am going to return and bring about God's reign upon the earth. And it's helpful to understand as well what's going on in this Passover meal, what the Jewish people would call the Haggadah, is that it's more than just a meal. It is a real meal, but it's a meal that involves these certain rituals and customs that you do that make it much more special and meaningful. It's like, it's like in our house with Thanksgiving. You know, it's a, we always have guests in our home for Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. It's my favorite holiday. And we, we have a regular meal as well, but there are all these other special things we do as well. We often have like, or we used to have like a Thanksgiving tree, thankful tree where you could write something on a leaf and hang it on this little tree. We would have little prayers and sayings printed at the seats and people would go around and read them. We have a jar with random questions that we pass around and everybody has to draw one and answer it about themselves. If you had a superpower, what would it be? You know, these kind of things. And you have to say something. And then we always have the Pennington annual talent show that if you're ever in our home for Thanksgiving, you have to be part of the talent show afterwards. No talent is too small or too large. So those are things that it's a real meal, but it makes it much more meaningful. It makes it a tradition that deepens our memories. And that's exactly what this Passover meal is. It's a series of cups of wine and bitter herbs and crackers and things that remind the Jewish people about the Exodus, remind them of what this story was about. But notice this. Here's the shock. Jesus takes this familiar and important Passover meal and he makes it all about himself. Did you notice that in the text? It'd be like if I stood up at Thanksgiving and said, let's all go around and say some things you're thankful about me, right? That's about what Jesus does here. And if you look at the text again, 
he says, after taking the cup, he took it and he says, divide it among you. I will not drink it again. Verse 19, he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it to them and said, not here's the bread to remember what God did in Israel or in Egypt. Or here's the, here's the cup symbolizing blood that was put on the doorposts. He says, this is my body. This is my blood poured out as a new covenant for you. And notice that language. So this is radical. He's saying this whole event, this Passover event is about me now. And in fact, it's about a new covenant. And any Jewish person hearing this, including the disciples, and we can understand this down in the tradition as well, the Passover was about God establishing the Mosaic covenant. And now he's saying the new covenant is found not just in God doing something out there, but in him. The covenant that the, the prophets promised would be a time when God no longer relates to us through priests and rituals and sacrificial systems and at a distance that we can't get near because he's so scary. But the new covenant, when God's instructions will be written on our heart and he will call us friend, that we will see God face to face. And this is the image. Jesus is there face to face with his dear friends saying, I am giving myself in a new covenant to you and to you. And so we have the bread, we have the wine, but what's missing in this radical reinterpretation of the Passover is what? The lamb. And to repeat the question that a child asked his father thousands of years ago, Father, where is the lamb? Well, this, friends, is the genius, the beauty, the shock, and the wonder of this story and why this text today is so important for the center of Christianity and for our understanding is because of what Jesus does. It's a plot twist. You know how it is when you're reading a great novel or watching a great show, and then near the end, the climactic moment, you realize that what's really going on in the story. And you realize that that those things that were things you didn't understand were as important or you didn't know how they all fit together all come to make sense at the end. When the astronauts who land on the planet that is run by apes and the humans are slaves at the very end of the 1968 original Planet of the Apes, they're going down the shore and there's a piece of the Statue of Liberty. Remember this? And they realize this was Earth all along, right? Or in the prestige, when you realize that Borden, sorry, spoiler alert, is a twin, actually, and this is how he can get away with that. Maybe that doesn't mean anything to you. Sorry. Maybe this will work. When George Costanza pulls the golf ball out of the whale blowhole and realizes this was the one that Kramer had been hit off the building. Maybe that doesn't mean anything to you. Yes, exactly. Is there a marine biologist around here? Exactly right. right. What is this, France? Come on. Right? That's good. That's excellent. Or when you realize Harry Potter himself is the final horcrux. Or one that we can all understand. When you realize for the first time, and it's so, been so long, none of us will feel the impact of it. But when you realize for the first time that Darth Vader is Luke's father. Right? <laughs> Friends, that kind of beautiful, powerful rethinking of a whole big story 
at the plot twist is exactly what is happening in this text. Because you see, the way back in the garden, the beginning of the Bible, we see that the first Adam and Eve, through a wrong eating, break covenant with God and break relationship, the result being shame and death. And then we see right after that, that God promises that someday he will send a redeemer who will crush death. And then we see that not too much later, that Isaac with Abraham, the one God calls, is on the way to make a sacrifice. And he is the one who asks, where is the lamb? And Abraham responds, God himself will provide the lamb. And then the Passover occurs where the firstborn son is given as a sacrifice in death, who is also metaphorically a lamb in this way. And then all throughout Israel's history with Moses and Joshua and David and all the prophets, all the way down to this very night that we're looking at in this story, the epicenter of history itself, where Jesus becomes, he is the son of God, he's the lamb of God, and he is bringing the new covenant through his own self-sacrifice, bringing deliverance from slavery, bondage. This, friends, is how beautiful and artistic and powerful and wonderful and wise our God is. All that he has been doing in creation comes to its completion in this moment in a way that none of us could have anticipated is more beautiful and powerful than any story. And it's true that all of history is met now in this night, that the stone table is cracked by a deeper magic. And through the sacrifice of Jesus' own body and blood, he recreates the world and reboots the world and our relationship with God. That's how important the Last Supper is. And in fact, then the question we can ask is, I mean, what does that mean for today? If it's that important, what does that mean for you and me? And I want to answer it in this way. And how does it relate to memory? That's the real question too. Well, the answer I would suggest to you is that the act of remembering us looking back on this event, the act of remembering is essential to living as God's people, as his children, because God meets us in those acts of remembering. Let me say that again. The act, the intentional act of remembering is the way God has designed it to meet with us. He reveals himself to us as we remember him. And I want to help you think as we, as we kind of bring this together and bring this series together and bring this sermon together, as we think about the Lord's table, I want, I want us to think about the, the fact that we reenact this memory each week. And I want us to ponder for a few moments what that means and, and what impact that can have on us. And I want to think of it in, in terms of past, present, and future. What is the reenacting of this memory of the, the Last Supper how does that affect us in the past, present, and future? Well, think about it backward, past-looking. Again, all through the Old Testament, God gives us examples. Not only, not only gives us commands about remembering, he gives us examples of what happens when people stop remembering God. You think of Abraham and Sarah. He had promised that they, he would provide an heir. And understandably, over time, when it was not happening, they began to wonder and doubt. And I'm sure they asked themselves, do we remember that correctly? (laughs) Did you write that down? I can't quite read this. Is that what they said? And the memory and the trust was flailing 
And as a result, they made a huge mistake in giving Hagar to Abraham to try to have an heir. Or you think of Joshua and the generation after the Exodus, they forgot what God had done. They forgot what it was like to be slaves and they complained. They forgot how God had delivered them and the result was disaster. And you think of David in 2 Samuel 12 and how he forgot God's provision and it led him into disaster as well. Paul exhorts us in Ephesians to remember our former lives and that God had rescued us once those who were far off have now been brought near. Why? Why does remembering the past matter so much for you and me? It's because in remembering God's character and who he is in the past, that's what resources our continual living today. So maybe you're stuck emotionally in some situation and you just can't imagine getting out of it to remember that you've not always been here, you won't always be here, and that God is still present with you. Or maybe when you feel anxious about something, a health report or finances or relationship stress or consequences that you're facing because of something stupid you did. We've all been there. And it's not that bad things won't happen, but remember, you've been through other times and you survived. And God was faithful and God was with you. Think of all the times you prayed, God, if you'll just help me in this situation. And he did. And yet now those are just, most of those are lost, aren't they? But can you remind, can you intentionally remember, yes, God did answer that prayer. Yes, God did provide in this way. Yes, God did lead me in this way. Friends, that enables us to keep living. Or when you feel guilt and shame and regret, remembering that God's grace has rescued you. Remembering that while you and I, if you're a Christian, before you were a Christian at all, he set his love upon you and said, I choose you and I am pouring my grace and love towards you. You see, as a, if you're a Christian, maybe especially if you've been a Christian a while, you, you probably understood that at some point and you rejoiced in the fact of that. But now some years later with some guilt and shame and regrets, maybe you live like I often do, just kind of wondering when the other shoe is going to drop, when God is finally fed up and we've done too much. And you live with this kind of low-grade guilt and shame that, that you've not done enough and that God is not really for you. Friends, did you see those words in this text? When he gives his body and he gives his blood, did you notice what he says twice? He says, I give my body, I give my blood for you. For you. You see, friends, God is not reluctant to be in a relationship with you. He's not just waiting for you to screw up enough. I think a lot of times when we talk about Jesus' death, which is what this passage is about, we often emphasize how bad we are and how unworthy we are. And we are sinful and we are in need of redemption. Otherwise, Jesus would not have needed to die. But friends, that's not the emphasis in this text. The emphasis is on out of Jesus' love, his friendship with us, his desire to be in relationship. He gives himself for us. It's very positive. This text is not meant to make us beat ourselves up as our unworthiness. It's meant to make us lift up our heads and realize God is for us in Jesus. And so if you are feeling guilt and shame today, which are real things, real emotions from real situations, I understand that. 
And there's not a quick fix, I realize that. But friends, God is for you. And if he is for you, who can stand against you? And so remembering that, remembering that while you were dead, he died for you, can give you courage and hope to press on. So that's how past affects present. Did you notice that he doesn't just say, say these words to each other every time you gather together? We don't just repeat the words of what Jesus did. We actually partake of them in the present. Have you considered how significant that is? That God made creation. He made nature. He made the physical world. He saw that it was good and he loves it. And he loves our bodies. He made our bodies. We are not just brains that are trying to get free from physical bodies. That, friends, is called Platonism. That's not Christianity. We are embodied creatures. God made us physical bodies. Jesus took on a physical body. When Jesus rose from the dead, he did not become a spirit because he got free from bodies. He took on a resurrected physical body. God cares about our bodies. God cares about the physical things of this world. And when we partake of these elements, that's a reminder. God is not anti-body. God is not anti-pleasure. God is not anti Um, actual embodied experience, he himself took on a body and he gives us this physical reminder every week that he cares about nature and creation. He cares about your body. Even though they're flawed and even though we are uh, broken, there is a time coming when we will be redeemed. We're not just brains, our whole bodies. And what that means that food and drink and sand in your toes when you're sitting on the beach, all these things are good. It means that pets and pools and pears and paper and pickles and pinatas and ping pong and pony rides, and those are just some of the peas, are all great things. God has made a kerjillion things for us to enjoy. And when we partake of this each week, we're reminded God cares about our real lives in our bodies. And that's a good thing. And also, we use those bodies because we live in community with each other. We're not just spirits floating around. The other thing that this present reminder, each week partaking of this, is that we are united together. When Jesus gives this cup, he doesn't just say to all his disciples, everybody take their cup and raise a toast to the Passover. He actually passes the cup around and they all partake of it. That's an image. That's an image or a metaphor or a symbol for our unity at the table. This is a big part of why it's so important to celebrate the Lord's table is because we are saying together now in the present, we're not only looking back, we're saying in the present, we are, our destiny is together. Friends, there is no such thing as a Lone Ranger individual Christian. If you are a Christian today, what that means is not that just you've been forgiven your sins. What that really means is you have been put into a body, the body of Christ first, and secondly, the body of his bride, the church. You are now in a body. The result of that is your forgiveness of sins. Do you understand the difference? To be a Christian is to be put into a body of people. You share the destiny of Jesus himself. You share the destiny of the church. As a result of that, you get forgiveness of sins, right? But you are put into unity. 
And so each week when we celebrate the Lord's table, we are proclaiming that we are part of one body. And that can suck because their people can be jerks. And you can be a jerk and I can be a jerk. And we hurt each other's feelings deeply, deeply, deeply hurt each other. I'm mad at some people right now. Nobody here, right? But we are seeking imperfectly to be one body. Maybe today you need to reach out to somebody to proclaim one body together. And finally, more briefly, we not only, the Lord's table helps us look backward, it helps us think about the present, but it's all about the future. You see, the Lord's table is not just this sort of thing like a tombstone where we say, man, Jesus was great, because it's an empty tomb. And he proclaims that he is going to eat of this meal with us again at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what you see in the book of Revelation very clearly. This meal is reenacted and repartaken of in the final day when Jesus will come and reestablish the new creation fully. We are looking forward. So in other words, each week of partaking of this is not so much a looking back only, but it's like putting $100 or $10 or whatever you can do each week or month toward that cruise or toward that all-inclusive vacation or whatever you think would be a great vacation. It's like an investment in the future reality. That's what we're doing when we're partaking of this. We are each week reminding ourselves and reinvesting our souls and our hearts into the fact that Jesus is going to come again and be with us and we will be with him. These are habits, habits of grace that form our souls. So Facebook will keep popping up memories for me to relive and and reshare, and I'm glad for that. But each week we gather in restaurants and in homes and at parks and at playgroups, and especially we gather here to say we are ones whose lives are marked by God's work in the past on our behalf. He is for us. We are proclaiming our unity together and embracing the fact that we are embodied creatures and we're looking forward to the future when God will restore us completely in joy. And so with that, friends, if you're a Christian today, I wanna invite you, and if you're new to our church, just so you know how this works, we partake uh, the Lord's table by coming forward um, and we partake of this broken bread that represents his body given for us and this Wine or grape juice, we have both. The wine is marked by a twine, so whatever your conscience or desire allows. And you dip a piece of the bread into this, partaking of one cup and one bread today, friends. And so if you're a believer, we invite you to come and remember that God is for you today. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.